This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello there. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. As we all know, a child needs warmth and acceptance, physical touch, your physical presence, love plus boundaries, understanding, play with people of all ages, soothing experiences, and a lot of your attention and your time. Well, I guess that's it, right? That's everything we need to know. Well, except it really isn't because life can get in the way. Circumstances, child care, money, school, work, lack of time, and busyness, and that's, of course, not an exhaustive list. But what can get in the way more than any of those things is what was given to us when we ourselves were babies and children. If we don't look at how we were brought up and the legacy of that, it can come back to bite us. You might have found yourself saying something like, I opened my mouth and my mother's words came out. Of course, if those words made you feel wanted and loved and safe as a child, that would be great. But so often those words have the exact opposite effect. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about the legacy that we inherit from our parents and what it is that we can do to confront that legacy and tweak it so that we can become the parents we wished we would have had. And to help us with that is my guest who's written the book that we're going to wish that our parents had read. I'm Armin Brat, and it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Philippa Perry, who's the author of the book You Wish Your Parents Had Read, and your children will be glad that you did. Philippa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's have you start off talking about the importance of the past and what it is that, that we're bringing to our kids and how that's affecting the way that we're parenting. We have to think about what children need. And what they need is a really good relationship with us, one that they feel safe in. And, of course, we want to provide that. But what gets in the way? And what can get in the way is our own past. Um, we can think about how we were parented and what worked and what didn't. And we can, we can make lots of resolutions about how we're going to be when we're going to be a parent. But what tends to happen is without wanting to, we feel exasperated with our children. We feel impatient with them. We raise our voices when we didn't want to. We get absolutely infuriated and we take it out on them. And we didn't want this to happen. So why does it happen? And it usually happens because our kids are 
whatever age they are, they will trigger in us bodily memories of what we felt when we were their age. So suppose, you know, we had a pretty happy time of it until we were four. And maybe when we were four, something bad happened to us, like perhaps our parents had an acrimonious split or something. We might find ourselves being irritated by our child. And we think we're being irritated by our child in the present, but in fact we're responding to our own inner child uh, from the past. And it can happen in other ways as well, like, um, for instance, if your child is unhappy and is whining and crying, we don't like to be reminded about the time when we felt as vulnerable as that. So rather than feel with them and empathize with them, we, we tend to get cross and, and, and try to shut them down. And it's not their fault. It's not our fault either, but if we can become aware of it, what we're doing and where those feelings come from, um, we can do something about it. You know, it sounds a little like you're saying that we're doomed to repeat the mistakes that our parents made, which I think is, would come we're as horrible news to people. We're doomed to repeat them. If we're aware of what's triggering, triggering us to feel unhappy. I mean, I've got an example in the book of a man called Mark who was okay until his son was about two. And when his son was two, he just thought, oh, I'm so bored of being a parent. It's just not for me. I'm not cut out for it. I'm going to leave the family. I'll just do Saturday afternoons. I can't do this full time. It's just not me. And uh, he was sensible enough to come to therapy about it. And um, I asked him what happened to him when he was two. And he said, nothing. I was fine. I said, you know, just have a think. What happened? And his father left and deserted him. He never came back into his life when he's two. And he said, oh, I was fine about that. You know, I had a really good mum. I didn't mind. It was fine. But I kept needling him, and eventually he dared to get in touch with how he felt when he was a child, when he was two. And he ranted, and he raved, and he cried, and he was angry, and he was angry with his dad. And once he recognized those feelings and got them out, he found that he loved being with his son again. So he wasn't reacting to his son in the present when he was getting fed up with being a dad. He was reacting to what happened to him when he was their age. And I've got lots of examples, some less extreme than that, in the book about how um, what happened to us when we were the age our children are now can affect our relationship with them. Can you give us a, a little bit more of a sense of what it is that we're supposed to do with that? Because not everybody's going to have you in their living room to help guide That's them through this, this whole process. So what well, do we do? When we feel an emotional charge, when we're with our child, it feels very charged. We're suddenly angry or irritated. It's best to just stop ourselves, give ourselves a minute, reflect and not react. And... You know, if our child's annoying us, say, by asking for something again and again and again, we don't have to respond then and there. We'll go, I'll think about that. And then you can think, when you've got a bit of time, about what it is that you're reacting to. 
what happened to you when you were that age. And then you, if you're honest with yourself, you can go, ah, I know what's happening. For example, you know, when I was four, I never got any presents, and my kids getting all these presents, I realized that I'm jealous. You know, we can work it out. And, of course, there'll be times when we don't work it out, and we do react angrily, and it's our stuff and not the kids' stuff. And it's not the end of the world if we do that. We can say, I'm sorry I was angry, you know, um, something else was going on, it's not you, it was me, I took it out on you and I shouldn't and I'm sorry. And if we apologize to our children, what we're doing is modeling making mistakes and making amends for those mistakes. And our children will learn from that and they'll learn how to apologize too. So it's, it's no bad thing if we find that we've made a mistake if we go on to correct that mistake, if we go on to say that we were wrong to, to shout or whatever it is we did. It, that's something I think a lot of people argue with. I, I, I've talked to a lot of, of folks, friends and otherwise, who feel that apologizing to a child is wrong, that you shouldn't do it. It sets the, sets the parent up as an equal in a way, and there shouldn't be an equal relationship with the child. Agree with that. I think there should be equality where there can be equality. Obviously, the parent is in charge and in charge of safety and in charge of, of their child, but we shouldn't exploit the power we have over our children. I mean, they'll know when we've been wrong. And if we pretend we're right when we're wrong, we'll be interfering with their instincts. And their instincts are essential for their intuition and their intelligence. So we really don't want to mess with them. And some people say, well, if you apologize to your child because you've got something wrong, won't they feel unsafe? But it's unrealistic to think that someone can be right 100% of the time. And it's, it, do, it doesn't make them feel unsafe. It makes them feel safer when we say, I shouldn't have shouted back then, uh, you weren't being bad, I was just really irritable. It's, it's a good thing to say, and it teaches our children that they too can apologize and note when they've been wrong without going through something terribly humiliating. If we're stubborn and inflexible and always insist on being right, that's exactly what our children will learn to do, and then they won't be so easy to be around. You talk a lot in the book about attachment, and it's, that also loops back a little bit to the way we attach to our own parents. But can you give us a quick overview of what attachment is and, and how it plays out? Okay. Well, we will form a bond with our child, and uh, they will form a bond with us. That's, that's biological. That is nature. So they'll be more attached to you than they will be to, say, a stranger. And that's how you want it to be. But we really want them to feel that they can take their relationship with us for granted and they can feel secure in it. Because if they feel secure in their relationship, they're not preoccupied with the relationship, which allows them to be more curious about the world. If they're always having to think, you know, does, does daddy still love me? Uh, am I good enough for daddy? 
then they won't free up enough of their intelligence to be curious about the wider world. And they'll always be obsessing about relationships. And they'll go on to have sort of insecure relationships in their life if they don't learn how to feel secure in a relationship. So it's important that we respond to our children without them having to work too hard to get our response. If they have to work too hard to get a response from us, we are actually training them to be annoying and attention-seeking. If they can take our, um, our responses for granted, our attention for granted, then they won't have to attention-seek and they'll be a lot easier to be around. So it pays to invest time in the beginning, not pushing our children away. And if we don't push them away, they will separate from us at their own pace and not keep having to check where we are. If you think about it, when you first take your kid to the park and you've got this little enclosed play area and you sit on a bench and the kid goes to the sandpit and plays on the swings and all of that, if you don't chase after them, but you stay on the bench, they will go a little bit away from you, and then they'll come back to check where you are. And they'll go a bit further away, and if, then they come back to check where you, where you are. If you chase after them, then they don't regulate their separation. And if you um, insist they go away from you before they're ready to, you'll make them anxious so they'll cling to you all the more. Children will separate at their own pace, and we just need faith that they'll do that. Speaking with Philippa Perry, who's the author of the book, you, the book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Philippa. If you love them enough to listen to them practice the same song on tuba, please be done. Over and over and over and over and over. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're correctly buckled in the back seat. Sounds good, honey. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott, and if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Philippa Perry, who's the author of the book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. Uh, let's can keep talking a little bit about attachment, but also the mental health component of it, because so much of this is about mental health, obviously, and our yeah. own mental health and what we're bringing to it, and and talk about how that what we can do to set a or to create a strong foundation for mental health, even with infants. Right. Um, I think a really good way to set a strong foundation for infants is to respond to their coercive cries. All mammals have a coercive cry. This is a cry that you can't help be a. a alerted by. I mean, in a, in a pack of zebras, if they see a lion, they'll make a noise and the whole herd will instinctively keep together and run because it's a coercive cry. And when a baby cries, you feel alert, 
you feel like you have to go to the baby, and it's really good not to fight that basic instinct of yours because it's there for a reason. It's part of nature. And if a child knows that their needs get met, they can relax rather than live in fear or sadness. And then they develop a sort of default mood, if you like, of taking you for granted and feeling relaxed. And in that way, they get into the habit of feeling okay, which is what we want. We don't want them to get in the habit of feeling anxious whether or not you're going to respond. Later on, what really helps, and at the beginning too, what really helps a child's mental health stay strong is if we accept all of their feelings. We want our kids to be happy. So it's, it's, na it's, it's natural for us, perhaps, to encourage them when they're happy and try and shut them down if they're angry or sad. But this is a mistake because you don't make a child happier by denying the feelings that you might be finding inconvenient. I mean, if our child is really, really angry, our job is not to try and shut that anger down, but to help them find acceptable ways of expressing their anger and frustration. You know, so if a child's having a tantrum, we need to put the tantrum into words for them. Oh, you're really angry, aren't you? I can see you're really frustrated. And be able to contain them. We don't ever want our children to feel that they are too much for us because it will help their mental health better if they don't think they're too much for anyone. So, ironically, the way we develop a capacity for happiness within our children is by accepting all of their feelings, all of their moods, and being able to contain them for them, that it not being too much for us. Can Does you that talk, make sense? Yeah, but can you talk a little bit more about the putting things into words? Because there, there are some kids who are just not as verbal or not as verbally oriented or may not even understand the words themselves. And to, so to say to a kid, oh, you're really angry, may not, may not well, mean much. Well, that's how they learn what words mean. But I think sometimes it's a really good idea if you can get them to draw how they feel or... Show me how angry you are by throwing, you know, this, this ball onto that cushion. You know, it's sort of expend the energy a bit. So there's other ways of expressing the anger that's acceptable to you other than, um, uh, 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 than uh, verbalizing it. I can remember once um, when my child was about four, uh, we're in the supermarket, and I'd, I'd weaned her. And I said, oh, we need to get some milk. And she said, oh, we don't need to get milk. We get milk from you. And I go, no, we don't do that anymore. And she had a complete meltdown in the store. And I took her home, and I said, show me how you feel. And she did a picture of my bosoms. <laughs> she stabbed the pen where the nipples went in because <laughs> she was angry at them. And after that, she said, I don't need them anymore. I've got this picture of them. I'll be fine. So, you know. That's just, just one example of how a child can get, get through their anger by expressing it. It's not a good idea to deny it, because then where does it go? You know, one of the things we, we talk about here a lot on the show is, is this, what I see anyway, is a tendency towards parents to step in and 
rescue their children from failure or from making a mistake. And you talked briefly yeah. about that with apologizing, that that shows them. It's hard, isn't them. it, when, um, when we see our child doing something and we know the answer so quickly. We know what they should do. So, for instance, when you're child comes sad from school because her best friend isn't talking to her anymore. Um, it's not a good idea to rush in, ring up the child's mother, ring up the school, try and sort it all out, because our kid will learn nothing from that. It's much better to help her with her feelings by asking her to talk about them. You know, you're sad because your friend won't talk to you anymore. And then ask her what she thinks she can do about it. Because children are pretty good with, with brainstorming. I mean, we brainstorm at work to get through problems. But because our, we think our kids' problems are so easy, we just want to solve them. But we should help them find their own solutions because then we're teaching them how to problem solve. So you'll say to your kid, well, what do you think you can do about Amelia or whatever she's called, not playing with you anymore? And they'll go... Well, I suppose I could play with the new kid. And then you say, yeah, that's a good idea. It will start to feel better then, you know. Well, you, they'll come up with the solutions. You don't have to say, well, play with someone else then, because then <laughs> they probably won't because they'll still have all their yeah. bad feelings. Philip, will you talk a little bit about strictness? And, and that, that ties in. There's sort of like three ways of, you know, being in an authority with your child. You can be authoritarian, uh, which, is, which means you say, do it now, and you don't have any discussion about it. And sometimes we need to use that button. We can also have the lax way, when we don't have any expectations for our child at all, and uh, we, we, as it were, don't tell them of any expectations, so we let their room stay untidy and don't expect them to tidy it. And sometimes when a child can't manage anything more than that, it's quite a good idea not to insist on, on something. So sometimes the lax approach is appropriate. But the best way, the way I like, is the cooperation and collaboration. So this means if you want your kid to do something and they're not doing it, you've, you first define the problem by defining yourself. So you'd say something like, I have a problem with all your toys being on the floor. What can we do about it? And they might say something like, well, don't go on the floor. We go, no, that's not going to work for me. What other ideas have you got? And they, they might not come up with something. They might go, I don't care. I don't, you know, like they might. And then you might say, oh, you seem frustrated about having all these toys on the floor. Do you think it's not fair that you have to tidy them up when it was your friend that put them all there? And they might go, yeah, or something like that. And you say, well, what can we do? Should we break it down so it's not so overwhelming? How about we just pick up three toys and put them away and see how that feels? Because really, your job is not to tidy the floor. Your job is to teach cooperation and compromise. It's, it's, it's not about keeping the house tidy. It's about learning how to co cooperate with each other. So if we listen and understand about how your kid might feel overwhelmed by the task you've set them, we, you know, we can, help, we can help them break it down so it's less overwhelming. 
Do you see what I mean? It's sort of like, it feels like it takes longer, and sometimes you won't have time for it. But when you have got time to collaborate with your kid and to solve problems together, it's so much better than being lax or authoritarian. The middle way is always the best way, but unfortunately it's usually the most complicated way as well. I've been talking with Philippa Perry, and it's P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A, should you want to know that, Philippa Perry. And uh, the name of her book is The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. Philippa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy. Or you, your best man, your worst man. You, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my husband and I just divorced as amicably as possible. We've heard a lot about how children in divorced families act out, get bad grades in school, take drugs, have all sorts of mental health problems, and on and on. Frankly, both of us are worried that our children are never going to recover. Despite the divorce, we both want to be great parents and to give our kids the best in life. Is there some way to make that happen? This is one of the most common questions I get from divorcing and divorced parents, and I wish there was some way to get the media to quit portraying children in divorced families as self-destructive failure bombs waiting to explode. The reality is that kids whose parents have split, whether by divorce or the breakup of a never-married couple, can do just as well as any other kids. There are definitely some obstacles, but they can be overcome. Here are a few ideas that will definitely help. Don't believe everything you hear, except this, of course. Some studies do show that kids from divorced homes have many of the problems you mention. But in most cases, the problems are less the result of the divorce itself than of the quality of the parenting those kids are getting. I'm sure you've seen or heard of kids who have every conceivable advantage in life but never live up to their potential or end up in jail. Keep your relationship with your ex civil. According to a number of excellent studies, the number one predictor of how well children will do after their parents get divorced is the quality of the relationship between the parents. If you and your ex can get along, not fight in front of your children, treat each other with respect, recognize how important you both are in your children's lives, and support each other in parenting, all of which it seems like you're doing or planning to do, your kids have a great shot. Love the kids and reassure them often. Children, especially young ones, are concerned with only one idea. How will whatever's going on right now affect me? If you or their father moved out, they might be worried that the other will move out too and leave them alone. If they saw you and their dad fighting, they may worry that you'll divorce them if they ever disagree with you. Your kids need to know that you love them no matter what, and that divorcing their father has nothing to do with your relationship with them. 
Children also frequently believe they caused the divorce, especially if you and your ex argued about anything to do with parenting. They need to know that the decision to divorce was made 100% by the adults and that the children had absolutely nothing to do with it. Stop trying to be amazing or awesome or perfect or fantastic or even great. Shoot for good enough. You're mortal. You'll make mistakes. You'll have personal issues, and that's okay. Ask for help and accept it. It doesn't have to take a whole village. Sometimes all you need is a good support network. Having a friend or relative pick up the kids after school if you're hung up at a meeting or carpooling with another family can take the pressure off you and show the kids that there are other adults who care for them. Keep it real. Spending time with you isn't a vacation. You don't need to buy your kids love. That means homework gets done every day before they play. Boundaries get respected, rules get followed, and life stays as close to the way it was before the divorce as it possibly can. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. We're all connected all day and in every way. Smartphones, laptops, tablets, and smartwatches, screens and cars, airports, gas stations, classrooms, offices, hospitals, and hotels. The constant barrage of a 24-hour news cycle. The list goes on. Our daily experience is to consume information at every turn. And we're really becoming victims of weapons of mass distraction. And it's becoming increasingly unclear how we're supposed to defend ourselves while our brains are under this constant and unrelenting assault. Our biggest challenge is to try to figure out how much of all that stuff that's coming in and bombarding us is relevant, what's useful for us, and what is simply a complete waste of time and energy. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert on noise. I mean, the kind of noise that is this constant distraction. And he's got some great strategies and direction and plans, essentially, that can help us 
come up with ways to strengthen our own focus and reduce interference. And not only that, practical skills that can help us improve how other people around us can pay better attention. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about overcoming those weapons of mass distraction when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Three, two, one. Oh, no. Which button am I... When every second counts, you can't wing it. Uh, Guys, a little help up here? In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear. Prepare your family at ready.gov slash fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Joseph McCormack, who's the author of Noise, Living and Leading When Nobody Can Focus. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why don't you start off with defining what you mean by noise? I, I, can, I consider noise all of the digital distractions and interruptions and information overload and all the the things that consume most of our day, and most of it ends up being useless. And, and I, I, I consider it noise because we have to find ways to filter this out so that we can, we can find ways to focus on the more important things in life. And by digital distractions, obviously phones, everybody knows about how phones are, are causing all sorts of problems and distracting us from things. But I, I was surprised that you mentioned things like uh, overloading with news uh, that people get completely obsessed with. And uh, I mean, it's been one of my things I've been on this rant for a while is if you turn on one of the news shows, regardless of the channel, they're just going on and on and on and on and not really saying anything. They're not saying anything. And if you look at, if you look at a, a 24-hour news cycle, if you look at the amount of sources of information, what ends up happening is they, 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 um, they treat information in words and make them worthless. So you, it's t- people are talking to talk, talking to hear their own voice. People spend hours upon hours watching what's, what ends up being could have been said in five minutes, and it's it's useless. And it takes it. One of the bigger ideas here is that it takes the brain the same amount of energy to focus on something which is useless than it is something that's useful. So if you look at like a flashlight, it'd be like using your flashlight during the daytime only to find it at night when you needed it, it's depleted. Hmm. And, so, that's, and that's how people's lives have become. So I don't, I'm not against technology, but what's happened over the last decade, we've just, we've just, in the last 10 years, the smartphone has become the source in your pocket of all information, and it's a constant source of information. And people incrementally have gotten used to it. It's like, I, 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 my analogy is it's like a house guest. It's like inviting somebody to your house. And they just stay. And they don't. They never leave. And now they're running your life. Right. So no, that's a good the, analogy. The point here is like this. This just happened. It's happening, and people need to be aware that I'm spending an enormous amount of my energy focusing on stuff that doesn't really, at the end of the day, matter. So, are there measurable results or fallout from this kind of thing? I mean, I can say, all right. So we 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 get too much information. 
and we should probably rest a little bit. But you know, really and truly, is this hurting anybody? Yeah, I mean, if you if you equate consuming information like consuming food, um, the analogy might be you're consuming information that most of it's really not that relevant for you. It's not that important for you. It would be equivalent to like having a diet of eating popcorn and Diet Coke. You feel full, <laughs> but it actually has no nutritional value, or very little. And the same thing is with information. You're feeding your mind. You're, you're spending a lot of energy, you know, consuming, like swiping on phones and looking. And what it does is it tricks the brain into thinking that the next swipe or the next click or, or looking at an app or a notification is going to be like winning the lottery or, or playing blackjack. And the brain is hoping for the, pay, the big payout. And the big payout doesn't come. And, but it's addictive. And we spend all of our day doing this. So if you, we did some research, and it's really, it's really interesting and troubling at the same time, that 70% of the people in a survey that we did, the first thing they do every day and the last thing they do every day is check their phone. It's the first and last thought of their day. In fact, many people are bringing the phone to bed, which is a little creepy. So clearly there's not a lot of managing this thing right now. It's, getting a lot of, it's, it's, not, it's being mismanaged, and, and, it, and a lot of the information, I call it noise, is, ends up being like you're listening to noise, and it makes your brain... Um, you know, it, it wastes energy, basically. You know, I want to get back to something that you said a little bit earlier about how you're spending time focusing on things that aren't relevant to you. And I wonder from a devil's advocate point of view about whether in some ways that might be a good idea because you're pushing yourself. I think one of the, the problems, I think, that the people talk about the media coverage around the 2016 election and people not being able to tell the difference between fake news and real news and but I think it's it's good for people to be challenged by something that they haven't thought of before. But I guess maybe that's maybe that's a, attributing too much substance. I mean, obviously, to be open-minded, open to different points of view is, is a different matter altogether. What I'm talking about is it, our habits, habits to just mindlessly consume information. Um, do we really need to know what the barometric pressure is in the Philippines right now? Um, if you look at the types of information, Snapchat and a lot of social media sources is one source. Is it, you know, it's people spend, like if you go through like, like news feeds or Facebook feeds, and you think at the end, if you assess, how much of that information is actually relevant to me? Email. We did, you know, research, like research indicates that, you know, p- people delete half their emails within like three seconds. So you're, oh, absolutely. But you're, your brain has to still stand up and focus on that only to find out it's useless. So, yeah, I'm not talking about being narrow-minded or, or, or shutting everything off. I'm, I'm talking about being selective. Okay. All right. So are there, are there things that have been measured about showing that people who have experience with this kind of noise are less open-minded or they make poor decisions in their life? Uh, I'm just trying to figure out whether there's some uh, a medical connection possibly here with this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, it's, it's, addic- it's addictive. So a lot of these apps are, become, become addictive. So you lose control over, um, it becomes a little Pavlovian. So think of a notification and alert on your phone. When they come, are we really making a conscious dis- decision to open it, or do we feel compelled to open it? So there's a loss of willpower. That's one moment where it's Pavlovian. It's just very, it's, it's, it's instinctive. The phone makes a noise, I answer it. 
I'm not even choosing to do that. It's just it's it's telling me to do it. I'm not telling. I'm not choosing to do it or to not do it. I'm. It's telling me to do it. And you got to do it right now. You got to stop what you're doing. But it doesn't care what you are doing. So you 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 have a divided mind, and a divided mind can't sustain its focus. So you lose attention. Your attention span becomes depleted. So it's harder to have conversations with people. It's harder to read books. Um, uh, somebody was telling me when, when Noise came out that they sat down to read the book and they found it very difficult to read because the phone was right there. <laughs> They're like, I'm, I'm, I'm discovering that it's harder to read a book. There's well, implications to that up and down education. Um, the way books are being designed are fundamentally different than they were 10 years ago. Um, it's, we're, a, we're a mile wide and an inch deep, you know. So that, there are serious implications in terms of learning, how to have conversations, knowing what to focus on, when to say no and when not to, self-control. There, there are many, many facets of this that are, that, yeah. are, that are important for people to look at. I just had an image of, you know, sometimes you go into a bakery or something or you go into Starbucks and you can smell the coffee or the, the buns or whatever. And then after a few minutes, you don't even notice it anymore because you've just gotten so completely used to it. And I wonder whether one of the fallouts from, from all this noise is that if we are at some point presented with something that actually is relevant or important, that we're just not going to pay attention to it. That's exactly right. It's exactly right, because when you, when you train yourself to listen to everything, then you, you, you miss the most important thing. Um, with parents, one of the... One of the a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with, I do a lot of work with the military, specifically the special operations community. So I was working with these guys, and we were talking about the book and at one of the breaks, and in, in one of the courses, I teach a course on unconcise communication and clear communication, and we were talking about noise. And, and this guy was telling me, ten, he's like, 10 years ago, my father, let's say this guy was 20, mid-25, 28. Ten years ago, he was 15, 18 years old, however old he was. And he's like, my dad was giving me a hard time about how much time I spent on my phone. He says, fast forward 10 years, my dad, he's, he's saying this to me, my dad spends more time in his phone than I do. <laughs> so in 10 years, the tables have turned. He says, we don't talk to each other as much anymore. We spend all of our time because everything's important and everything's urgent and we're missing these important things, which is one of the big ones is each other. Yeah. And then another guy chimes in, and he was listening to the conversation. He said, I drove, he drove from, you know, North Carolina up to New York City to see a bunch of college uh, roommates. They had like a, a weekend reunion. He said, nobody talked to each other. Hmm. He says, I drove six hours, and I was so angry. If I had known that that was going to be, I would have stayed home. So they're serious. Yeah, there's, you're absolutely right. You, it becomes a new normal. You don't even notice it. You, and and I, I always tell people, like, look at an airport. Look at a typical family in a car at a stoplight. It sort of happened and nobody knew that they just gave up their willpower. Talking with Joseph McCormack, who's the author of Noise, Living and Leading When Nobody Can Focus. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Joe about noise and what to do about it, and specifically some some things about how this uh, applies to us as parents and what we can do to help our kids and ourselves. I'm Armin Brat. You're listening to Positive Parenting. 
911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My son shot his brother. 911, what is your emergency? 911, please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Broughton talking with Joseph McCormack, the author of Noise, Living and Leading When Nobody Can Focus. So I want to get to to some of the, the prescriptive stuff that you have in the book about what we can do to overcome this. And I think, it, you know, it, it's I'm, I'm hesitant to to phrase it like that because I think given the, the power of technology, it's like trying to swim upstream in a very powerful uh, – <laughs> waterfall. Uh, but what what can we do in our own lives a little bit at a time to reduce the amount of noise that we have? I, I When I look at this issue, I am really, I have a very positive, practical outlook. This is completely manageable. The first thing that people need to know is it's an issue. They need to be aware of how much they, time and energy they spend paying attention to stuff and consuming information, which isn't that important. So that's the first thing is just be aware that this is something in my life that I need to manage. It doesn't manage me. I manage it. That alone changes people. Like technology information works for me. I don't work for it. That's the first thing. I think the other thing that's, that is really just very practical, simple, is giving yourself quiet time during the day and, and schedule it. The brain needs a rest. The brain needs a rest. So I have something called the seven to seven rule. So I typically don't check any technology or information until seven o'clock in the morning. I wake up at 5.30. I have quiet time before I start that. I don't put my phone on my nightstand. It's in another side of the house, another side of the room. So I manage that. So I, I intentionally start looking at that information at a set time during the day. And after 7 p.m. in the evening, I generally don't check it. I'll keep it on in case there's somebody who calls me, but I'm not constantly checking it to look for the next big thing. That, so I set some boundaries. It's like a store. Stores open at 9, they close at 6. The same thing, we set store hours, right? 7 to 7 is, is, a, is, a, is a rule. You can set whatever rules you want, but that starts to set some conditions every day. That's, that's, and using that time for quiet to, to, to plan, to read, um, to have conversations with people possibly, to rest are important things because our brain is really working hard during the day consuming information. So we got to give it a chance to, those are, those are a few basic things, saying no to technology, setting some rules that anybody can do. It's, it's, I, I, I joke like we don't need an app to manage this. Well, although there are apps, I would imagine that do this. They probably, there, I mean, there are apps that will shut your phone down. I think it's hilarious that there's like, I need an app to not use my phone. I mean, I, and I, 
it's good that you're measuring the amount of time. There's apps that tell you your usage up or down. I think those are general as a principle or up and down. But I think a person should, if they're aware, they should know. Think of like parents with kids. It's like I, we don't eat all day long. I mean, I think good parenting is we have breakfast when we have breakfast, we have lunch when we have lunch, we have dinner when we have dinner. I think that's just general parenting, good parenting, right? We don't eat all day long. We want to be healthy. Same thing with technology. We don't, we're not on our phones all day long. That's not how we spend our time. We use it when we need to use it. It's a tool, and we don't, we don't use it all the time. And right now, people don't abide by that. And I think the, what, for parents, the first thing is stop blaming your kids. Lead by example. Put, put your phone away at dinner. Sit down and ask your kids, like, how was school today? And really care about what their answer is. Because the phone could be like a digital babysitter. It does, it's not parenting for you. So I think parents need to lead by example. They, they complain about it, but then they're, they're as, as guilty or more guilty than their kids. Do you think that there needs to be some explanation on this kind of thing? Because I think just saying, okay, we're, we're going to have time out or time, you know, time down from the phones. We're just not going to have it on. You know, everybody's going to put their phone underneath the seat of the car when we go into this restaurant, so we're not going to be playing. Or do you, do you explain a little bit about the overload and how bad it is for you? Yeah, I, I think that you do. I think this is an issue that affects everybody. It was interesting when I was writing the book as a parent is I see it changing my kids. And I'm, I want to be a good parent, and I'm not always a good parent. So I have to have a conversation with my kids about this, not in a moment of anger and rage, but talking about the, this was not a reality a decade ago or 20 years ago. It is now. So I think, yeah, I think having in – the, in the book Noise is, is an opportunity for – kids could read the book too. It's, got, it's written for, for, for kids and for parents, everybody. So I, it, it gives you a point of starting a conversation, which is an important, which is where do I put my focus and where do I pay – what do I pay attention to and where do I put – I pay attention to people. We sit down at dinner. We talk to each other. When we're in the car, if you need to check your phone, check it, but put it away. So we can talk to each other. I mean, time in the car is a great time with kids. Talk to your kids about what's going on at school when you're driving to sporting events. When you look at what's happening in cars, I, I feel like, for me too, I've lost a little control. All the kids are on the phones, and they always have an excuse about why they're doing it. There's a time and a place for it, so just start that conversation, I think. And how do you deal with the biggest thing of all, probably, for kids, is the, the fear of missing out? that, oh, all my friends are on it and I'm going to miss out on the updates or they're trying to get a hold of me to schedule something or whatever it is that becomes something I think a lot of people just give in to. You have to look at the risk. And the, the risk is um, there's a risk and there's a potential reward when you check. Your, like, one of the biggest risks is it really leads to anxiety. So people are they're really... And, and, and I think parents can talk to their kids in the context of like, hey, the same thing happens to me at work. I'm always afraid that I might, there's an email or I'm, I'm worried about things that I should stop worrying about because at the end of the day, nothing bad's going to happen. Like I'm not – if you look at the reality, you're, if you check what you've checked, you're not missing like all these massive things. They tend to be not that important. And I think setting boundaries are like, all right – Let's, yeah, you can check it. I'm not saying don't check it, but all the time. I mean, nobody has critical information all the time. I mean, unless you're like an EMT or a, a brain surgeon, you're, 
probably not at critical moments 24-7. You know, so I think that fear of missing out is an issue that affects everybody. You just got to talk about it. Well, what about flipping things around? Because you've talked about it so far in terms of taking breaks from technology. But what if you, you said we're going to have, generally speaking, a non-technology life and we will have breaks where we can use the technology? I, I, I think you could do that. I think each family is a bit different in terms of how they want to approach it. But there should be a strategy of how we want to be as a family. Some people create family mission statements and how we're going to be as a family. I'm, I'm personally not proposing, um, you know, we're going to live in the mountains and, you know, and, and not have electricity anymore. And, I mean, it's a good thing. It's, but something that needs to be managed, right? It's a, it's, and I still think we're in the early days of, like, the early days of radio. This is like the early days of, you know, pervasive connectivity, you know, that we can have access to all sources of information in my pocket. It's a pretty powerful thing. So the, the, my point of view is find ways to manage it so it doesn't manage you, but don't, you can't throw it out the window because it's very difficult to do that nowadays. There, a friend of mine did something very funny. I don't know exactly how he did this, but I, I'm, I'd like to figure it out. He, he programmed his Alexa, right, his, his um, like, wireless speaker, mm-hmm. to when he sees his kids are just going beyond, he says out loud, Alexa, enact the Amish protocol. <laughs> In, I don't know what he did, but the Amish protocol, when Alexa hears it, shuts the wireless down and the entire wireless in the house. Just shuts it off. <laughs> That's so very funny. The kid, it just goes dark. <laughs> so that was his strategy. I think I should, that might be a, pro, a plan. Or just, you know, when you get in your house, maybe have a bin where, like, we put our phones in the bin. Like, you check your, in the, in the Wild West, we, you know, check your, your gun at the door. We, we, my, my, there's a story in the book Noise. My daughter um, had a birthday party, and her younger sister just got a big Tupperware bin and said to the girls, nobody told her to do this. Hey, put your phones here, have fun at the party, and you get them when you come back. And they all did it, and they had a blast. Had they not done that, would they have as much fun? Probably not. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are starting to discover this, especially like people in their 20s. Like, this is really robbing me of a lot of peace. Like, I'm spending an inordinate amount of time doing this, and it's really not giving me a good return on my time. You know, the, amount, the absolute amount of time they spend with technology is, I think a lot of people are realizing, like, you know what, i got to stop doing this. This isn't, this is, I mean, my, I, I, have, I have countless stories of people that have told me, like, when I start bringing it down, start managing it, my life becomes better. Joseph McCormack's the author of Noise, Living and Leading When Nobody Can Focus. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. That's really thought-provoking stuff. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.